Hi, my name's Simon McLeave, and this is Chapter 1 from my debut novel, The Snowdonia Killings. Chapter 1, March 2017. It was nearly midnight as officers from Peckham CID moved into the rancid concrete stairwell of Crane House, SE15. It stank of piss and weed, and used crack vials crunched underfoot. The walls surrounding them carried the names of heroes of the local gang, the Peckham Young Guns, recorded in thick, rounded white graffiti. Dwayne G, Bailey, Dukes, Choke. Four armed response officers dressed in their black Nomex boots, gloves and Kelvar helmets over balaclavas moved purposefully to the bottom of the stairs awaiting instruction. Their goggles and ballistic body armour gave them an eerie, futuristic appearance. Carrying Glock 9mm pistols, they moved to the bottom of the stairs. Detective Inspector Ruth Hunter was taking no chances as she motioned silently for the CID officers and the AROs to head up the stairs to the fifth floor. She heard the thudding of her pulse in her ears and felt the grip of anxiety in her stomach. She adjusted her tight, heavy ballistic vest. Even though it was there to save her life, Ruth cursed how uncomfortable and restrictive it felt. It's worse than Jane's bloody bridemaid's dress, she thought. Thirty minutes earlier, Peckham Nick received a call to say that someone had heard a gunshot in flat 127 of Peckham's Pelican Estate in south-east London, a notorious hive of drug gangs, violence and murder. Ruth knew the flat was home to Kosi Asumana, a.k.a. Taz, a drug dealer and member of the infamous Peckham Boys who had been linked to murders and crimes for decades. Asumana had been on the CID's radar for a while now, even though he's only a minor dealer of crack cocaine on the estates. However, Ruth was more concerned about the fact that Usumana lived in the flat with his wife Zaria and their two young children. She prayed that none of them had become collateral damage in a deadly trade. Already that year, London had seen the deaths of four innocent members of the public caught up in the crossfire of gang warfare. And it was only March. It's turning into South Central. The officers moved quietly along the concrete walkway and arrived outside the innocuous red door to flat 127. Ruth motioned and one of the AROs stepped forwards with what they like to call the big red key, a steel battering ram that would knock the door open in one hit. Ruth knew that a dry sense of humour was the only way to survive in the job. Ruth clicked her radio. 3-7 to goal command. Officers in position. Target location. The radio crackled back. 3-7 received. Goal command. Order is go. Ruth paused, her mind racing through the various dark scenarios they might find behind the door. Right, let's go. She nodded at the AROs and moved back against the wall. Bang. Ruth flinched as the doors swung open with an almighty thud and the AROs moved in, weapons trained in front of them. Arm police! They bellowed as they stormed into the flat. Arm police! Everyone get down! Ruth followed, heart pounding in her chest. The flat was tidy, with African wall hangings and a smell of spicy cooking. Ruth spotted children's shoes neatly lined up in the hallway and two pink coats hanging from hooks. It didn't look like the usual squalor she had come to expect of a drug dealer's home. The officers spread out throughout the flat, searching the rooms... In the hallway, Ruth carefully stepped over a discarded child's game, pieces thrown haphazardly across the floor. She had a sinking feeling in the pit of her stomach. 
Please let the kids be okay. Armed police, drop the weapon. An officer cried from the next room. It was followed by a woman's scream. Following the noise, Ruth spun to see the AROs training their guns at Zaria and Sumana. She came into the compact living room and immediately saw the, a body. Kosi Usamona, his white t-shirt was soaked with blood and a shocked expression on his face. He was dead. Zaria Usamana was also covered in blood. She held a 9mm Bacchial handgun, but her hand was shaking uncontrollably. Her box-braided hair, fashionably held by a brightly coloured scarf, juxtaposed her terrified composure as Zaria stared wildly at the officers who had just stormed into her house. Her eyes jumped between all the strangers in front of her, around the room, out of the window, but her stare was blank. She was in shock. Something had happened here. Ruth glanced at the AROs and calmly said, It's okay. She moved forwards, looking at Zaria, establishing eye contact. Zaria? Mom? An IRO said in a concerned tone, but Ruth ignored him. She knew what she was doing. Zaria, my name is Ruth. I'm a police officer, Ruth said in a well-rehearsed and gentle tone. Zaria came out of her trance, looked up at Ruth, and then down at the gun in her hand. She clearly didn't know how it got there. Drop the weapon, the ARO commanded again, but Ruth gave a hand signal to give her a moment. Shouting at her isn't the way to do this. It would be sod's if she died tonight. He, he's dead, but I don't know how. Zaria's Sierra, Sierra Leone accent was thick. Zaria, I need you to give me the gun. Ruth's tone was soft. Zaria, can you pass the gun to me? Zaria looked at Ruth, but was still in a daze. Then she nodded, put the gun down, and slid it across the table. One of the AROs came forwards, took the gun away and made it safe. They had the gun, but they had a new problem. Ruth crouched down and looked at her. Zaria, where are your children? Zaria looked her at her, shook her head. Her eyes were suddenly wild. I, I don't know. Ruth looked at the detective sergeant. Check the flat. DS nodded. Gov. Ruth glanced at a female detective constable. Keep her here until we find the kids. She didn't want Zaria trying to roam around the flat in a frenzy. Ruth quickly manoeuvred herself out of the living room, down the hall, and found what looked like the children's bedroom. Two small, single beds with pink princess duvet covers, dolls and teddy bears neatly lined up on the pillows. She checked, but there was no sign of the children. Where the bloody hell were they? The DS hurried towards her down the hallway. Nothing, Gav. No sign of them. Shit, Ruth muttered. Were they lying somewhere dead, or had they simply fled and were now out there on the estate, terrified and alone? This isn't good. Then, from inside the children's bedroom, a noise and some movement. Ruth turned and walked over to where she thought the noise had come from, a narrow pink wooden cupboard that had been built into an alcove. Ruth carefully opened the doors and immediately saw two young girls cowering, utterly terrified. Thank God. Sitting down on her knees, Ruth looked at them. It's all right. No one's going to hurt you, okay? We're going to look after you. The first girl blinked for a moment, then shifted and stood up. Good girl, come here. The girl's face was streaked with tears as Ruth took her hand, 
and gently guided her towards the DS. Her little fingers were icy and still shaking with fear. Do you want to come with me, darling? Ruth asked, turning back to the alcove. The other girl nodded, held out her hand, and Ruth helped her out of the cupboard. There we go, you're safe now. Ruth watched as the girl wandered over to her sister, still lost in the trauma of what had happened. What would the events of the last hour do to them as they grew up? She'd seen it so many times before, the ongoing cycle of crime, poverty and addiction in places like this. There was nothing they could do except try and hold it all together. Lives could be ruined in a split second, especially in SE19, and that's why she was leaving the Met at the end of the week. The dark, heather-clad moorland of Denbyshire, North Wales. Its acidic heathland was home to yellow and green bilberry and gorse, Behind these uplands, the ominous mountainous landscape of Snowdonia Park, and then Mount Snowdon itself. Fionnard Snowdon, 3,600 feet above sea level. It was a dark, looming and timeless presence. Watching. Judging. Sometimes it felt like a strong, protective and even reassuring boundary. A geographical shielding arm. Other times it seemed to suggest a hidden danger, anger or even malevolence a wronged past or resentment that would eventually be settled. Dark in summer, dusted with snow in the winter, snowed in in Welsh. Ye would yaf. The tomb. Uneven grey mountain walls seemed to dissect the landscape randomly. Made from local dry stones, they dated back to the heyday of the nearby Penryn Quarry at the end of the 19th century. The walls had weathered, and formed a rich growth of lichens striving in the clean air and fresh westerly winds. A rabble of butterflies also inhabited the mountain walls, including wall-brown butterflies patrolling their territories, migrants such as the Red Admiral and Painted Lady, and the peacock butterfly observed on the wing as early as mid-February. Further up the mountain, moraine and esker gravel banks and pingo depressions had formed by the melting of buried ice at the end of the last ice age. It felt like a forgotten landscape. Not on the way to anywhere, just here. Somewhere where time stood still and nothing changed from century to century. Epic in scope and the final refuge against the invading Romans and Normans, Snowdonia was where Owen Glyndor, the, nat the last native prince of Wales, had been crowned. Across the hills below, DS Nick Evans cursed the uneven ground below his feet. Lithe, handsome, with a dark beard, he had an authority beyond his years. It's far too early for this much running, he thought, as he chased after a man twenty years his senior. The old man puffed and grunted as he went and slid, but Nick was on gaining any ground. Nick had known the man, Dowie Jones, since he was a boy. He had taught Nick geography at the local secondary school, Yuskul Dinas Paddock, until he took early retirement and worked on the family sheep farm that covered 1,600 acres. The Joneses had run the farm for generations. Snowdonia was that kind of place. A series of tightly knit communities where everyone knew everybody and their business. However, three days earlier, Dowie Jones had been implicated in an ongoing investigation into the production and circulation of child pornography in North Wales. When Nick arrived to ask him a few questions, Dowie simply ran. If he had doubts over Dowie's guilt, then he had been crushed by the older man's immediate dash for the back door. Nick had no idea where Dowie was going or how he thought he was going to escape. 
step-in detective Sergeant Nick Evans of the North Wales Police, a safer North Wales. The ground steepened, and they were now 1,200 feet above sea level. Even in the spring, the wind could be icy, and Nick felt the cold sting on his hands and face. He thought what a tough, unforgiving place it was to farm. That the Welsh had farmed sheep here since medieval times seemed beyond amazing, veering on insane. Nick allowed him a small smirk of national pride and patriotism, but right now he had a suspect to catch. Nick ploughed on, slipping on the bumpy ground before regaining his footing. He was stunned that Dow was still going. It didn't strike him as particularly athletic, but Nick had hardly gained any ground on Dowie in the fast past few minutes. Nick's calves were burning with the effort of running and keeping balance. His hangover wasn't making it any easier. This is getting bloody ridiculous, he thought. As he glanced up ahead, Nick spotted a chestnut-coloured horse tethered to a wooden gate in the approaching field. Dowie was heading straight for it. Nick had a sinking feeling as he watched Dowie untie the horse and heave himself onto its back. You've got to be kidding me, Nick muttered as he sucked in air. Dowie kicked the heels, kicked his heels and the horse galloped up the steep mountainside noisily its hooves throwing clumps of earth into the air. Where the hell is he going? Dowie's escape seemed directionless, and an educated man like him must have known it was only a matter of time before he was caught. He'd have to come down from the mountains eventually. Nick knew he had no chance of catching Dowie. Maybe he'd just radio for help. For a moment he thought they could get the police helicopter out, but he knew that since budget cuts it was hardly likely. Nick stopped and looked around, thinking what to do next. Then he spotted a mud-splattered, Greed was quad bike in an adjacent field. Bingo. A moment later, Nick jumped over the fence, got on, pressed the ignition and gave chase uphill. Nick had ridden quad bikes as a, as a kid. He rode the vehicle skillfully like a jockey, taking the bumps in the natural suspension of his knees. This will even out the odds, he thought. Dowie was out of sight, but a minute later, Nick came thundering over the brow of the slope and then slowed the quad bike as he reached the rocky terrain that led up to an old rusty feed shed. The horse ate grass outside, unaware of the unfolding drama. Was Dowie in the feed, sh feed shed? If so, why? Nick stopped, seeing that he would need to travel the rest of the way on foot. He jumped from the quad bike and steadied himself on his feet. The bumpy ride had destabilised him. He navigated the uneven ground. His foot slipped on some wet moss and he nearly fell. As he clambered over the rocks, Nick remembered how Dowie used to meet up with Nick's father, Reese when he was home on leave from the army. That was until Reese became too entrenched in the illness to travel to even leave the house. Dowie and Reese belonged to the same Masonic Lodge over at Shirk. Nick also remembered sitting on the banks of the River Dee, just up from Clangollan, with his father and Dowie. A glass of pop and red straw, crisps with a blue square packet of salt, halcyon days shot in the soft focus of childhood, summer evenings that went on forever. Just as they began to wander up to the Cornwall pub, Nick had seen a salmon leap from the water. The sun caught its pink-orange tail and, although he probably imagined it, Nick remembered the salmon seemed to hang in the air for seconds. Reese and Dowie, who were in the middle of arguing about the latest cricket test against the West Indies, missed it. But Nick knew it to be true. Boom! Nick's train of thought was broken. He knew exactly what the sound was. A shotgun. His heart sank as he let out a breath. Oh, Dowie, what have you done? Constructed from grey corrugated iron, the shed was rusted where the bolts held it together. 
and it quickly unhooked and opened the iron gate, which creaked as it swung on its hinges. Inside it felt damp and dark, and the air smelt thick and musty. There was a twelve-foot feed passage down the centre with a steel barrier for silage or hay. The wind hummed against the iron structure, reverberating with a low, deep, eerie moan. Nick clicked on his torch as he went deeper into the barn, casting its light across the floor. The torch beam stopped short as it lingered over the sight of most, what Nick most feared, boot feet, booted feet and muddy trousers in a, in a sitting position. Straw that was dark, black and sticky from blood. Nick blinked and then forced himself to look up. He recognised the chin with the greying stubble, the mouth that had laughed and told crude jokes that Nick didn't understand. But above that bloody top lip, the head was gone, shattered into a thousand pieces against the corrugated iron behind. Streaks of blood, brain and skull fragments had spattered ten feet up the metal wall. Stuff of nightmares, Nick thought to himself, of his nightmares. And he knew exactly how to take those nightmares away. He pulled a small bottle of vodka from the inside pocket of his jacket, unscrewed the top and took a long drink. Thank you for listening to the Happy London Press podcast. Please leave a review. It really does make a difference.